You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. And so I think we, we have to trust that our heart, I, I believe that our heart is the strongest muscle we have. And when it's most sensitive is when it's working well. And even though there are moments when I feel overwhelmed or in joy or sorrow that feel, quote, unbearable, I have to say my heart so far has never let me down. It's only gotten stronger, bigger, clearer, more loving, more gentle. That was Mark Nepo, the poet, teacher, storyteller, and author of 20 books, including More Together Than Alone, Things That Join the Sea and Sky, and The Book of Awakening. He joins me today to discuss the power of true community, the eight worldviews that build community, and how we are responsible for everything, including the good and the bad. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Mark, thanks so much for joining me today. As I was mentioning in the green room, I am really excited to talk to you um, for many reasons. One is that your work has inspired me for quite a while. Um, and I also love your um, recent book as well. And we'll, we'll dive into that. So thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be a part of your work. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Great. So this book is your 20th book, correct? Yes, I, which is kind of Amazing. I can't believe we're saying that sentence, but yes, it is. Yeah, and it started 30 years ago with your cancer journey um, in the Book of Awakening, which is, you know, gone worldwide, you know, best-selling, popular. Like, it was one of those books that I think everyone in the in the realm of spiritual work or spiritual evolution kind of knows about, right? Um, so, 30 years, 20 books. Um Thank you for, for sticking to it. I, I was writing um, on my book this morning and thinking about this interview and thinking like, man, I, I just really appreciate my heroes and leaders that have spent their time at the desk and in coffee shops um, wrestling with words when it wasn't fun. Yeah. And, you know, and I think it's important to to note that, you know, in, in these last years, these last 10 years, especially, you know, the the life of poetry and the poetry of life have wonderfully blurred. And so, you know, it is like a fish finding the, the stream and water. And, uh, and in that regard, it, it gets beyond what we achieve. It's where we live. And we go there to breathe and to be in the deep and to be refreshed. And it turns out that the books are the trail of that journey. Absolutely. And as you, at least my experience and that, yeah, other people that I've talked to, it's like as you write the book or as you create the book, you're created. Um, and there's this co-creative process that happens when you're in that deep well and discovering and exploring. And sometimes, you know, sometimes you're the lead and sometimes you're the follow, you know? Yeah. For, you know, for me, I really have, feel like writing is about listening and taking notes and one of the hardest things, you know, I've taught creative writing through the years. And one of the hardest things to teach young writers, including when I was young, I, you know, is that you, we work so hard. You have a vision. You want to create something. And, and every book that I've done, all 20, not one is the book I started. Because once it comes alive, we're asked to listen 
and to work with it and to co-create. So especially, you know, a way to understand this is, you know, especially with poems, uh, you know, they really are the teachers and the books are the teachers. And so I follow my heart. I follow my struggles, my confusions, my questions. And then I know I know what's true before I know what it means. And so then I retrieve something and then I have to be in conversation with it in order to learn what it's carrying. Yeah, I love that. Um I promised myself I wasn't going go to process, but we're already process. And so, <laughs> so, so we're like two minutes into the interview and I'm like, okay, I'm going to ask about this because what you mentioned is really, um, sometimes you're down there in the depths and you discover something you're like, oh, I didn't know that was there. Um, and it looks shiny and it looks great from a distance. And then you touch it and you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for that piece. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, you got to, decide to let it go or to pick it up. Like what is your process for when you do discover those things like that, that, that you almost can't grab onto, but you know, it's there. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so let's first just say that when we're talking about process for me, you know, while we're talking about it and I experience it as a writer, um, uh, it really is a process that's about introspection and about transformation and about the inner life. And that's why it's worth talking about, because whether any of our listeners are writers or artists or not, this is a valuable, transferable process about being awake and staying awake and the struggle to stay real. So, you know, for me, I, I know that when I'm present and, and usually great love and great suffering bring us right to the moment. And when I can bring all of who I am there, then I uh, become, uh, I become changed. I become uh, instructed. And often in, the, in those depths, one of the great teachers is paradox. And paradox, one way to simply understand it or for just for conversation is, it's, to me, it's any moment where more than one thing is true at the same time. And for me, I've learned over time and over the years, the mind can't solve paradox. The heart needs to embrace it and let it in. And when we allow those things to resonate beyond our logic, beyond our reasoning, they release a deeper logic of spirit. You know, Martin Buber, the, the great Jewish philosopher, he said, the world is incomprehensible, but it is embraceable. But it is embraceable. And so I think that, you know, a good example of, of what you were kind of alluding to is, you know, in one of in the book before this, Things That Join the Sea in the Sky, I have a piece about my wife and about um, in the middle of the night, uh, you, know, as, you know, we've been together for 24 years and in the middle of the night, you know, our dog sleeps between us and, and I woke up and all I could see was her hand kind of dangling in her sleep. And that moment, like all of a sudden, so like I leaned into that, it struck me. And that would have been a sweet moment all by itself. But I stayed with it. And what came was, oh, all the things that she's cared for, including me, all the things that hand has done and held. And I stayed with that moment more. And then all of a sudden, her hand went limp. And all of a sudden, I was struck, oh, this might be what it would be like if she were to die in her sleep one day. Well, I wasn't looking for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But 
but staying with it, staying with it until it opened into its its full mystery was incredibly moving and wholesome and deepening and in informing me. And even though that was a little scary to have that part come up, it it really was part of the whole teaching. And so I think we, we have to trust that our heart, I, I believe that our heart is the strongest muscle we have. And when it's most sensitive is when it's working well. And even though there are moments when I feel overwhelmed or in joy or sorrow that feel, quote, unbearable, um, I have to say my heart so far has never let me down. It's only gotten stronger, bigger, clearer, more loving, more gentle. You mentioned two things that are really, I think, key to the art of living and full living. Um, one is, um, you, I think you mentioned them in passing, but one is being able to stick with the discomfort, right? Because so often we reach that uncomfortable spot and we're like, ooh, we don't like that. It, you know, we don't want to hang out there. And so we go back, you know, we go back to what's comfortable. And a lot of times that means going back to the head, going back to things that we can, you know, put an equation around and that we can solve easily and, and avoiding that. And sort of dovetailing with that is when we approach a true sort of wisdom paradox or Dharma paradox um, that we can't resolve, we immediately try to simplify the problem, right? And pick one one extreme and go that way. Um, and I was thinking about this as I was walking yesterday, is that like most most of the wisdom traditions teach some version of the principle of moderation, right? Um, it's at the root of all of them, but and it's really simple to understand, but it's not provocative. It's not particularly sexy. Like it's hard to write a book around about the, the, the wisdom of the principle of moderation. Yet that's where the juice is, you know? Um, and so I just want to say, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned those two things so quickly. And, and um, it seems like you had something to say about that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I think that moderation is often misunderstood, or the middle way, and and you know sometimes we 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 say, oh, well, that means I won't get too high or too low, but I think that it's more about balance. It's about staying with an open heart, present in the middle of all things, and like a sponge would be in the water, soaking everything up. And it's not about about muffling our experience, but centering our experience. And and I think that, you know, this is one of the things that this will lead into things about the book and about society and community. But, you know, I, I think it's particularly it's always been, but particularly in our modern culture, not just American, but worldwide. You know, we think of success as getting what we want. And conversely, we think of failure as not getting what we want. That's really a pretty infantile definition of success and failure. You know, that I, I think more deeply, and all the traditions speak about it differently, that our soul's awakening is our career. And where that happens is our occupation. And that can change where that happens. But we are always looking to be as alive as possible uh, and our engagements bring us alive and bring us to each other. 
And so you had mentioned about, you know, we want to go back to what's familiar or what's known or what's easy. And, you know, happiness is a mood. I like to be happy just like I like ice cream. But I'm more interested in joy as a state of being than happiness as a temporary mood. And so when I'm in a state of being that opens up to joy, I can be happy and sad at the same time. I can be clear and confused at the same time. And so to, to go back to your notion, and there's a, in the book here, this is really a, a, a notion that comes from Robert Keegan, who is a professor at Harvard, who is a leader in developmental psychology. But he talks about centrism, like egocentrism or you know, uh, ethnocentrism or nationalism or anything, you, or family centrism, whatever you want to say, he defines that as mistaking what is familiar as true. I think that's profound. When, you know, I'm talking to you and you bring up something that I've never thought of. Well, if I retreat into what is familiar is true, then, then I also reject what is new as false. And this, this becomes one of the seeds of prejudice and of bias and of racism, <clears throat> because just because it's familiar doesn't mean it's true at all. So, you know, in, in, in the, so, so let's, let's move to the book a little bit. And I, you know, this book, More Together Than Alone, Discovering the, the, the Power and Spirit of Community, you know, I, I, it's just the timing's beyond me that, it, that I finished it now. I've worked on it for 13 or 14 years. And, you know, I think that what initially led me there is during my cancer journey 30 years ago, you know, I think I experienced immediate and deep community in the waiting rooms, in the treatment rooms, where all of a sudden anyone who's been in a life-threatening situation will recognize all of a sudden um, you're thrust in a room with strangers. And some of the people that I was closest to in the world, I met in those rooms. I don't even know their last names, where they lived or what they did. All we knew is that we're sitting there and we go, oh, hi, how you doing? I'm afraid. Me too. What, what are you for? Yeah, well, I'm here for this or this procedure or that. And, you know, all of a sudden you get right to the heart of things. Or as the Hindus say, thou art that, you know, we are. So, so to pause here for a moment, you know, that in the first, I'm 67 and in the first half of life, which I think is archetypal, we looked, how can we distinguish ourselves? What is it that makes us unique? How am I different? from you, and what can I contribute, even a good way, even in a noble way. But love and suffering over time erode us to what matters. And on the other side of my cancer journey, on the other side of almost dying, I only want to know what I have in common with other life, not what, how I differ. And when I can discover that, paradoxically, it reinforces my uniqueness and my gifts. So, so this book, I start, you know, about 13 years ago, um, I was interested in um, stories and lessons of moments when we have worked well together throughout history and cross-culturally. And 
Um, not, I'm not interested in creating a social theory or I just wanted to gather the stories and their lessons because, and, and pay tribute to and make known that that is a lineage too, a lineage of care and interdependence that we are a part of and that we need to be able to access now more than ever. So, you know, there's, there's a chapter early on in the book or first third called the two tribes. And, um, you know, as I reflect on where we are today in America and around the world, you know, I am of Jewish heritage, but I'm a student of all paths ever since my cancer journey. And, um, and I had family in my grandparents' generation that died in the Holocaust. So all of a sudden here I am and, you know, I see Nazis and white supremacists in America. And when did I ever think that would happen? You know, how am I supposed to do with that? So on the one hand, I reacted a very personal as a person living here. And then as I reflected on it more, you know, throughout history, you know, there are swells. There are times in history when we've pushed each other away and times in history when we've come together and it keeps moving and rotating. And so you know, I imagine the first time when two people in cave times might have come across another human being for the first time. And until that time, they thought they were alone. And one comes to the mouth of a cave and they go, who's that? You know, what are you doing here? I thought I was alone. And if we imagine that the one in the cave looked at the person who was different and through what Robert Keegan calls centrism and through the familiarity of, of only what's known says, oh, you're different, go away. And I think that was the beginning of the go away tribe. And depending on the level of our fear throughout history, that has manifested and metastasized, if you will, so that, oh, I can't even trust you'll go away, so I have to put you where I can watch you. I have to put you in a camp or a detention center or a refugee center or a ghetto. And in the worst of our history, uh, as human beings, it's led to genocide. Well, I can't even trust you'll be where I put you. I have to make you go away. But back at the mouth of that cave, the other person says, oh, you're different. Thank God. Come teach me. Because we are more together than alone. And, you know, Plato, who was part of the Come Teach Me tribe, said we are born whole, W-H-O-L-E, but we need each other to be complete. And that, at its best, has led to moments of enlightenment where we work well together, where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. But the catch, of course, is we belong to both tribes. And any day, I'm talking to you now, and tomorrow I could wake up so afraid that I need you to remind me Oh, yeah, right, right. We are more together than alone. Well, and I'm so glad you mentioned that, too, especially the dynamism of it, because um, something could happen tomorrow. You, you know, step out on the street and almost get hit by a bus and, it, you know, all the fears and everything come up. Right. And we might have different asymmetrical responses to that. You might think, wow, life is short and precious. And I need to um, really connect with those that are here. Someone else might have the like, life is really short and precious, and I need to like make sure that I hoard time, I hoard resources, that I take care of things, right? And it might like the same experience might lead one person or you know two different people the same way. And 
today we're together, tomorrow we're alone, just because that thing that happened to you that's not necessarily part of our relationship now got injected into it. Um, and so that I, I wonder, when we look at that dynamism, how, how might we show up as a practice when we were together one day, <laughs> we're separate, you know, we want to push away the next and recognizing what happens in that shift? Well, for me, I think one of the key things for all of us is the humility and the acceptance and affirmation again and again that we are more than what is done to us. Yes, my experience is true, but it's not all of experience. I learned this during my cancer journey when I had a horrific uh, chemo treatment and I was in a Holiday Inn in New York City and I got very sick and I was scared and I didn't know what was going to happen next. And it was going through the night. And I didn't know whether to go to the emergency room or not. And and finally, as the sun was coming up, as as uh, in what a terrible place I was, all of a sudden I realized that you know down the street, you know, a baby was being born, and somewhere else, as the sun was coming up, uh, uh, some a couple was making love for the first time, and and I realized that to be broken is no reason to see all things as broken. And, you know, what we traditionally do with those moments is we either make everything the world is our experience or we go the other way and say, oh, well, then then it's insignificant what's happening to me. And then, no, I, you know, all things contain truth. And that's the paradox. It was both true. I was terrified. I didn't know what was happening to me. But but life was continuing. And so I think one of the things that happens when we get afraid and when we're in pain is that we extrapolate and we make our fear and our pain a worldview. Oh, I'm in pain, therefore the world's a painful place. Oh, I'm afraid, therefore the world is not a safe place. And while there certainly are things to be afraid of, it's the balance. Then we go back to that middle way because it's the balance of being in a place where we can receive all of it. It's the wholeness of life and the human experience that makes us resilient and allows us uh, not to make everything us. And that that. That's a really dead. That's that's I think one of the greatest diseases of modern times is self-centeredness. You know, um, it's it's it, you know it's fine to be you know uh, Rabbi Hillel in the first century wrote one of the greatest haikus ever, three lines before hundreds of years before haiku was even a form, and he said, "If I am not for myself, who will be?" If I'm only for myself, what am I? If not now, when? And so we always have to be at the heart of our, I think that's beautiful and profound. Um, but, you know, we make everything us and then, and then we're in trouble. Then we're in trouble. You know, we've mentioned a lot of the different cultural worldviews, right? Um, and I think now's a really good time to really bring up the eight worldviews from the book and sort of walk us through that, because I think those are sort of things that we can always return to. Um, and so, um, you're going to say it way more beautifully than I will, so I'll let you, I'll, I'll let you do that one. Yeah, sure. So, so there are the second to last chapter in the book, you know, I was able to gather 
<clears throat> and there, there are more than this, but these are the ones I could gather, that there are eight worldviews and practices that we can personalize that help us recognize that we are each other and that we are more alone than together. And the first is the Native American tradition, the notion of all my relations. You know, we think all my relations means family. So we're all, you know, from tribal times, indigenous times, we recognize that family is what matters. Well, the beauty of the Native American worldview is that the entire universe is a family. So they say that everything is my relation. The wind is my relation. The dirt is my relation. And so this, and it's so much so that in the Blackfoot tribe, uh, in their language, they say "sa ni dabiwa" when they greet each other. We say "hi, how are you?" They say "sa ni dabiwa," which means "how are the connections?" Because forget how you are or I am. If the connections aren't good, then we got to tend them. And if they're okay, then we'll be okay. So, and the practice here is to discover, name, and repair the connections that exist between all things that make us all my relations in one family in the African tradition. Uh, and this is more known wonderfully and rightfully. So in the last 20 years by Nelson Mandela and Archbishop Tutu, but it's from the Zulu tradition Ubuntu and Ubuntu means uh, several things, but it literally means a person is a person through other persons. It has it's morphed to say, I am because you are, um, you know, and uh, we, we are because of each other. Um, and, and this is a beautiful that we, we water our common roots. That's the practice. So here we pause to talk about that in nature, a wonderful metaphor for community is the aspen grove. Because aspen trees are remarkable. I mean, aspen groves can be hundreds of square miles, thousands of trees. But what, what's so amazing about them is that above ground, they're individual trees. But underground, they share one root system. All their roots are connected in one living root system. And so an aspen grove as a community is one of the largest single living organisms on Earth. And what that's a beautiful metaphor for humanity because we are separate. We walk around. But where you can't see underneath, we all have one root system. And we need to water that root system. So not just out of altruism. If I am, if my roots are, are diseased, that's important to you because they're your roots too. So that's, you know, so Ubuntu and that practice of watering our roots. Uh, the third is from the Hindu tradition. I mentioned it. It's, it's thou art that. And here, this is that at the heart of things, we are the same. And it comes from a story around the Naya Gradha tree, which is like a redwood tree in India, is so enormous, and of a father uh, and a son. And the, the, um, the father is, uh, is Udalaka, and the son is Svetaketu. And he shows him, he, said, he has him break open the nut from the Naya Gradha tree, and it's empty, the, the, the seed. And he says, from that nothing, from that invisible, centered nothingness, everything grows. Thou art that. We all are. And again, it's, it's to feel a life of compassion that honors 
that we are at heart the same. So as people are listening, as we talk about these, the real next step that only you can do listening is, if any of these speak to you, how can you personalize it? What does it mean in your life to repair the connections between things? What does it mean to water the common roots between you and others? What does that look like on a daily basis? Um, the fourth is in the Jewish tradition, uh, Martin Buber, who I mentioned, you know, discovered or gave light to the, the I-thou relationship, which means in essence, everything is a living center unto itself. And when I honor that you are a life all by yourself and bring my life to it, then the way like two wires, if they get close enough, electricity will arc. Then what he says arcs when we are I thou with each other is the un, that the unrehearsed dialogue of God appears, which is beautiful. Now, the opposite of that is I it. That I don't read. I'm the center, and you're just oh, you can help meet my needs, and you're instrumental to me. I forget that you're alive, you know. And that is also a downfall for us that we fall into. So the practice here is how to stay committed to the life of honest conversation, where I don't pretend I know what you're going to say. I actually listen. You know, Thomas Merton said that if we truly beheld each other we would fall down and worship each other. Which means that I really can't know what I'm going to say if I really listen to you. That changes everything. The next is from the Lebanese tradition is a greeting, Ya-e-uni. And Ya-e-uni means literally, oh, my eyes. And it's a greeting that is, I learned this from my friend, the great uh, poet uh, Naomi Shihabnai who is Lebanese. And, um, and so what it means is, oh, my eyes, you're here. Now we can see together. Oh, you're here, finally. Oh, we can look together. Because, you know, unless we have two eyes, there's no depth perception. Unless we have two legs, it's almost impossible to walk. And so this is the fact that we need each other to see and that we need to welcome other beliefs other than our own. So how can we practice that? How can we practice welcoming other views? In the Chinese mythology, there's a great mythic creature called a qian, C-H-I-E-N. And it is a bird that has one wing and one eye. And its destiny is to find another qian so it can see and fly. And the next, there's just there's three more. And the, the next is from the early... Uh, desert mystic fathers in the Christian tradition. And they use this metaphor, which is beautiful for community, which shows how we are contribute as individuals. And it, it's that of a wagon wheel. And we've both seen those on Westerns or whatever movie, but a wagon wheel. And there's three parts. There's the hub, the spokes, and the rim. Well, what they suggest is that every soul on earth is like a spoke on that wheel. And as the, you live your life in the world and you're becoming, no, you go outward toward the rim, no two spokes occupy the same place on the rim. And the rim is community. So everybody has to find their own unique gifts to hold up the rim that is community. But in my being, as I go into myself, into my depth, the depth you were talking about earlier, now if you follow this 
the spokes, they all meet in the middle. So if I go deep enough into me, I find you. And where do they meet? They meet in that hub. And they said, the Christian fathers, that that hub is God. So in this way, it's a beautiful metaphor for how we live out our uniqueness and our commonness through being and becoming in the world. And the, the powerful thing is you take any one of those things out, you don't have a wheel. You take a spoke out, you take the rim off, you take out the hub, it falls apart. So that's a beautiful, uh, a beautiful metaphor for community. So the next tradition is Hige, which is from the Danish tradition. And the word literally means comfort. And it really invokes a uh, hospitality, creating a sense of well-being, of warmth, a sense of belonging, welcoming strangers as well as friends. And the final tradition is also from, from Africa, and it's the African Bushman tradition of greeting, which has gone on for hundreds of years and is still practiced. And so when someone in the tribe leaves to go hunting or gathering, and then they start to come back, when someone from the village sees them first return, they point and say, I see you. And the person returning who is seen puts their hand up in the air with a fist and goes, I am here. I see you. I am here. And this is all about the practice of bearing witness to each other and affirming. It's a very important practice. I think it's at the heart of all therapy. Sometimes we need to say, I see you, for people to know that they're here. And sometimes I got to go, hey, I'm here. See, oh, oh, I see you. But it's, it's like a, a, a DNA of relationship. So again, I appreciate your asking for those. And I think that they're, uh, what's so important is, and there's a chapter in there toward the end of the book, how do we personalize these? What does that look like? You know, Mother Teresa said that courage was doing small things with love. And that's all we have to do uh, is one step at a time to help affirm all of our humanity. You know, I so love all of those. And as you were talking, I was thinking about the different ways in which um, I like to think in terms of like fractals, you know, like the, the piece of the snow is, you know, representative of the whole snow. And it's like whenever we come to an us and them, it's a split in the I thou relationship. We just take it to the group level and we say, no, we're we are us and you are not us. Right. And we we it them at the group level. But it's that yeah. same dynamic that happens. It's like, no, we are we are whole and you are not a part of us. So we're going to do different things to you and just seeing how those play out. And when you look at the different wisdom traditions and and different concepts of sin or evil are almost always disconnection from something, right? You're disconnected from God, you're disconnected from your community, and you're acting in a way that keeps that disconnection whole, right? Which is just a, a replication of that sort of like the centrism of thinking that you're separate than, the, than whatever whole that you're talking about. Right, right. And often it's our lack of worth or our insecurity that makes us play seesaw with others. Oh, you got to be down so I can be up. And, and again, I think that it's great love and great suffering that level things out again and make us uh, return, because everyone does this at one point or another, make us return to what really matters, which is always, I think, found through an open heart. 
you know, there's a, there's a parable that I think is important uh, for our time. Um, and it's a parable that talks, that helps us understand what it means to be compassionate or cruel. So there are two monks and they've studied long and hard years and they're going to climb a mountain to keep an appointment with Buddha at the top. So they're off. They're off finally. They're ready. Halfway up the mountain, one of them breaks his leg. So they spend the night, and the one who is well cares for him overnight. And in the morning, he intends to go up the mountain and leave him, you know, there, as comfortable as he can. But it's clear by morning he's not doing well. He's got a fever, and it's obvious he can't be left. So now the parable actually ends there with the question, <clears throat> what does he do? What would you do? What do we all do? And, and I think what this opens up is when we have more people in an age that would leave their broken other to keep their appointment at the top of the mountain, we have an age of cruelty. When we have more people who would tend their broken other, other and realize that tending their broken other is the summit, we have an age of compassion. And every day, we are asked to make this choice, personally, collectively, and now it's more important than ever. Uh, and it doesn't matter what's at the top of the in the, in the parable, it's Buddha. You can put whatever you want at the top of the mountain. Success, financial su success, uh, security, family, romantic love, you name it. Whatever you want to put at the top of the mountain, when we insist on keeping that appointment over opening our heart and working with what we're given, we are leaning toward cruelty. And I think that, I mean, I've learned through my being a, a almost dying and still being here and being blessed to have people help me along the way, that um, it's, it's really at the heart of of so much is I think working for what we want is really an apprenticeship for working with what we're given. And that's where our greatness reveals itself. That's where our heart is larger than we thought it was. And we can give more than we thought we had to give. I'm going to add a little bit to that because I know so many of our listeners are thinking about the other with the broken leg and what to do about them. Um, but I also want to remind that there's another meaning to the prayer board. There's an additional way to understand it is like you are the person with the broken leg. And whenever you are trying to push yourself to that summit, whenever you're trying to do that and, and keep the eye on the summit while your leg is broken, while you're depleting and damaging yourself, you're also practicing cruelty. That's beautiful. Thank you. Absolutely. That's self-cruelty. Absolutely. Not loving yourself, not holding yourself, not healing yourself. Yeah, and there's room for both. I mean, and that becomes some, sometimes a tension because you can be self-loving to the degree that self-loving can feel like you're not other-loving. <laughs> um, and so we end up in these tensions, but I think, you know, 
coming from the place of where's the love, where's the love even here, which is something that I'm borrowing from my good friend, Mark Silver, right? He's got it. I think, I think he still has a tattoo. It's like, where's the love even here? Right. Um, and then finding where that goes is, uh, is always sort of a great guide um, to that. You know, I'm curious, you've been at this, as we mentioned for now, 30 years, um, and you've been living longer than that, obviously. Um, but you've seen a lot of love and suffering. What was it in this research and work that most surprised you along the way? Well, I think the thing that surprised, I don't know if it, I, I was surprised, but <clears throat> what became very clear, um, that's a common insight or pattern through all, all the stories from all traditions is that when difficulty and pain and fear make us think that self-interest will protect us, love and suffering affirm that we're more together than alone. And so I think this is part of a natural, <clears throat> I guess, pattern or spiritual physics, if you will. The fact that when we experience pain, worry, anxiety, fear, despair, grief, we pull in. It's like a natural reflex. And in life, even as we're talking, our lungs are opening and closing, our eyes are opening and closing. <clears throat> and so that's natural enough. But our job is to always open after we've closed, to always give after we fall down, to always stand up after we've been broken. And it's the rhythm of life. You know, the medieval monks said when asked how they practice their faith would say by falling down and getting up, which I love. I love that, you know. And so I think that what I've also not surprised but affirmed was throughout this is that when that the people who have given the most throughout history are the people who have the least. And and I think that's because suffering, no one, I'm not advocating suffering, I'm just describing it's like gravity, and this is just the way it is. I think that, that suffering, which is like the, what erosion is to nature, I think suffering is to humans. It breaks down and wears away <clears throat> um, everything that's unnecessary till only what's essential remains. And when we go through what we have to go through, it opens our heart to others. And I think the apprenticeship of compassion is when my heart opens because <clears throat> I can identify with you. So we become friends and I've experienced a broken heart and then all of a sudden you do. Well, oh, I, I can relate and I'm there, I'm there for you. But I think the mature, and that, I think that's an apprenticeship that never ends. And I'm coming to understand that the maturing of compassion is when I can take that and be compassionate to someone that I have no way to relate to their experience. And I know I experienced that myself years ago when um, I wound up in a in a bar with a Vietnam vet and uh, who was broken and destroyed and just troubled and no one would really listen to him and I wound up sitting with him and we had a few beers and you know at one point I just said I I can't imagine 
what you've been through. And he said, no, you can't. And I said, but I'm here. You know, and and so I opened my heart and all of the practice of being compassionate where I could relate enabled me to be compassionate where I had no way of finding a common experience. Because this is one of the paradoxes that's deep in the human journey is, of course, you have to live your life and I have to live mine and we have to gain wisdom from direct experience. But if that's all I rely on, oh boy, we're in trouble. So the paradox is relying on my direct experience <clears throat> makes me a hollow bone. Or as the Sufis say, they like to say that experience polishes the heart into a mirror. And when that happens, now I'm ripe or ready to receive and feel and learn from your experience. And together, uh, that's at the heart of community. <laughs> so many wonderful paradoxes. But, I mean, as we mentioned earlier, that's where I think the nuggets of wisdom and truth lie. Um, there's, it reminds me of, um, you might remember the name of the book. I, I didn't think about it earlier, but it's the... Um, the road to paradox. What is it? What's, Ooh, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there's a whole book. The about, freedom. No. Um, Oh, that this is going to bug me. I have to put it in the, I'll put it in the show notes gang. Um, but it was really road signs. That's the name of it. Like traveling the life of creator paradox. Right. And it had, um, it was chapters upon chapters of these dual paradoxes and how, if you stray too far to one bad things happen. And so it was basically the point was, um, being a spiritual wanderer means being able to pay attention to these road signs that the paradoxes provide. Um, great book, um, but it reminds me of this conversation as well. Yeah, and and you know, you know, one of Blake's aphorisms was that straight is the road to improvement, but crooked is the road to genius. Crooked is the road to genius, and and if we pause for a moment, the word genius, we think of it as meaning a, an, an extraordinary gift in a particular talent or skill. But the original notion of the, the definition of genius means attendant spirit. Everyone has a genius. This is the root of the word genie as well. And the whole Aladdin's lamp is if you embrace your experience, which is rubbing the lamp, your attendant spirit will appear to help you on your way, whether you would call that Atman or Holy Ghost or soul or inner voice or whatever we call it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think I have two more questions for you. Um, the first is, um, you know, as I was reading the book, um, so much of it, I, I love the, the entirety of the book, but the, the end got super rich for me. Um, the way mm -hmm. that, the way that things get pulled together. And so that's why I went to sort of the eight worldviews, but the picture of the blind boy struck me. Right. Uh, and sort of your description and everything like that. So I would love if you would share with listeners what the picture was and what it means to you. Yeah, thank you. I so appreciate that the the end of the book, because I worked really hard to try to weave something together there. Well, you know, after years of trying to understand these stories about community, I kept coming back to this one picture I had seen uh, by David Seymour, who was known as Chim 
was a photographer during World War II, and he was commissioned after World War II by UNESCO to do photographs of children in Europe. And that book was published, and there was, I saw this at the International Photography Center in New York, they had an exhibit of his, and there was this one picture of like a seven, eight-year-old boy, blind boy, with no arms. He lost his arms in the bombings of World War II. This is in Italy, north of Rome. And the picture is of him in the rubble, learning to read Braille with his lips. And after all of this, I just kept coming back to that image. Because on the surface, it's a sad image, you could say, and you know, but the more that I was with it, it's at the heart of resilience, and that there is this, this in, irrepressible and indomitable spirit and heart in every one of us, that no matter what's taken away, our arms, our eyes, will read with our lips, and will learn in the sun, in the rubble. And that to me wasn't sad at all. That was glorious. And the more I looked at that, which I talk about in that last chapter, we are everything and everyone in that scene. We are the ones who cause the war. We are the ones who clean up the rubble. We are the ones who help the blind boy. We're the ones who make the Braille book that he can read from. We're the ones who turn the page because he has no arms. We're the ones who hold the table in the rubble in the sun so he can do this. And we're the ones who take the photograph lest we forget. We are all these things. And I think that that's really at the heart of community is that like so much that the traditions speak of, we don't arrive anywhere. Wisdom I learned uh, you know, a while ago, it doesn't provide any shortcuts. It merely supports everyone on their own turn at this incarnation. And so we, each of us as in this journey, together and alone, you know, I, I think, you know, biologically it's considered, and this is relevant for our time as well, biologically it's considered that when you have one more healthy cell than unhealthy, the body's considered healthy. And the more you have, the more healthy. But as long as you got that one more, you haven't fallen under. And I think that's our challenge, every generation's challenge, and ours today. Every time we have a conversation like this, or the work that you're doing, or the work that I'm doing, or when people come together authentically, when we do real inner work, um, or we help each other when we're, we're not well, or we're starving, or we need help. Every time, um, we are making sure there's one more healthy soul in the world than unhealthy, so that we can say humanity is not toxic, but healthy. And I think that's our job. In the, in the Middle Ages, um, what was called the Dark Ages in Europe, the rest of the world was pretty enlightened, actually, at that time, but in the Dark Ages in Europe, for about 200 years, only 10% of the of the European population was literate. I mean, yeah, only 10%. And that 10% kept literacy alive for 200 years. And I think now it's not clear yet 
whether we're going up the mountain or we're tending ourselves and each other. But if we are entering a period of cruelty, then it's our job to keep the literacy of the heart alive. And then there's nothing more important. You may have, in the way that you do, answered my last question, which is, <laughs> as the guest on today's um, episode, um, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge, depending upon which most resonates with you. So, based mm-hmm. upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? Well, I would invite and challenge um, our listeners and myself and you and me um, to affirm our humanity and our oneness every day to find one way to do that, whatever that might be. I was just recently in London and actually uh, talking about the new book, uh, doing some events. And, you know, I saw there's a double deck buses in London and where I was staying was a bus stop was right outside. And I was having coffee one morning and the bus came and it left and a woman was late. And the bus driver crossed the street, started to leave. All of a sudden the bus stopped. There was the hiss and the door opened. So he must have seen her in his rearview mirror and he waited. I think that was the great teacher of my trip in London because we're all, we're all going to be late. And part of compassion is looking and waiting for each other. So, so I challenge every one of us, including myself, what is the, that, how, how do I do that today? What does that look like in your life, in my life? To not just keep looking forward, but to see who's around us and who's slow, and who's late, and who's got a broken leg, and to wait and help so we can go together. Mark, I could talk to you for days, um, but I'm conscious (laughs) of the time. Thanks so much for joining uh, me on this episode and for sharing um, your gifts and continuing to go to the depths and coming up with something that's transformative for the rest of us as well. Oh, well, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for having me. And good, good luck with your work. All righty, Creative Giants. So you heard it from Mark. What can you do today to affirm the humanity that's right in front of you? Who's got the broken leg? Who's late? Who just needs an additional second to catch their breath? Can you be that person that gives them that second, that tends the leg, that says, I am here, so that they can say, um, so that they can feel seen and ready to be loved. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.